According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Proverbs. And this morning, we can turn to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23 this morning. We took, uh, I believe it was 18 weeks to get through chapter 22. In fact, the last three chapters, 20, 21, 22, all three of those were 18 lesson um, chapters. And so we'll see how far we get uh, between now and the end of the year. I believe including today, there's 14 Wednesdays remaining in the rest of this year. And that includes December the 29th, which I'm not certain if we're going to have a Proverbs class. We probably will have a Proverbs class on the 29th of December. And that'll be the final one for the year. And then, uh, of course, Proverbs gets suspended for 2022. So just be aware of that. When we go to the Through the Bible format, that'll be Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, and there will not be a Wednesday morning uh, Proverbs class or a Wednesday morning prayer time. That's right. All right. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. Wow. Put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for it is a deceptive food. All right, verses 1, 2, and 3 form uh, the sixth words of the wise that got started way back in chapter 22. We'll pick up here this morning. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time and His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for grace and truth, thankful for each brother and sister that came this morning to be fed. And uh, Father, we just ask that you would reward and honor the volition that has determined that this morning your truth is priority number one. So Father, help us to study, help us to learn, help us to grow, open our eyes to what it is that we need to live out and, uh, and how to live it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we look at chapter 23 and we get started with words of the wise number six. Remember the first five words of the wise came in chapter 22. Let me just back up slightly so that you can see this. Let's go to Proverbs 22 uh, and verse 17. This forms the heading for a new section. And so really in a sense, even though I still have this as the label on the website, uh, that... um, Remember the broad divisions of Proverbs that Proverbs chapter 1 through 9 is, I I titled that as parental wisdom. And Proverbs 10 and following is personal and public wisdom. This is the wisdom that a a believer employs in his adult capacity standing before the Lord uh, as personal and public wisdom. And in a sense, my overall outline takes that from 10.1 to the end of of chapter 24. And I'm not going to change it at this point, but... um, then again, maybe I will, in a sense that you can say, well, that section really ended at 22.16. And that starting in 22.17, we should break out a separate uh, division within Proverbs. And maybe I'll end up doing that as well. But 
Um, I think I'll just keep it as, as a subsection underneath personal and public wisdom. The point being though, when you get to verse 17 of chapter 22, it says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. And this becomes a heading. This becomes a heading for what follows. And there are 30 statements that follow, plus six more. There are 30 words of the wise that follow. In fact, even um, when you can see, um, as we just run through these verses here, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you, have I not written to you, and this is the verse that causes so much confusion, have I not written to you excellent things? Or have I not written to you 30 things? And it, uh, depending on the manuscripts and depending on the variants and some of the, the problems here with the manuscripts, it might be the number 30 instead of the adjective for excellent. And uh, be that as it may. Have I not written to you 30 things or excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? So that's the heading. Verses 17 through 21 is the heading, and it introduces what follows. It introduces the rest of this segment of the book of Proverbs. And so starting with verse 22 then, do not rob the poor because he's poor, we have words of the wise, number one, right? Words of the wise, number two. And we have five of them here that that get us down through the end of, uh, of the chapter. All right? Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And I don't have my notes up here, or do I? From last week. Yes, words of the wise, number five, observe the opposite of obscurity. And we see the benefit of hard work. We see the benefit of being skilled and accomplished. We see that uh, the expert in a, in a particular field commands respect commands a high price, commands a claim. And so uh, a man that's sk- uh, skilled in his work is going to be acknowledged as such, and he's going he's to get top dollar, and the king is going to be hiring him and putting him on staff, and he will not stand before obscure men. The obscure man can't afford him. The obscure man, um, you know, maybe he knows him or says hi or something like that, but he has no business dealings with, with this man because this man is skilled skilled in his work. Anyway, we talked about that last week and maybe there's more we can expand upon it. But for today, we're going to move on. So in in chapter 22 then, we have the first five of those 30 statements. Okay, In chapter 23 then, we're just going to continue on in the outline and we're going to pick it up with words of the wise number six. And we're going to work all all the way through uh, till we get to words of the wise number 18. Six through 18. And that gets us to the end of the chapter. And then into chapter 24 is when we have number 19 through 30. And we get through 19 through 30, uh, by the time we get to 24, 22, we wrap up the, the 30th of these sayings. Here's the 30th of the sayings. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them. Okay? And words of the wise number 30 I think are so pertinent for our circumstances today, but I'm going to let it go. Can't preach it until we get there. Okay, uh, But fearing the Lord and fearing the King, you talk about trying to balance your secular life with your spiritual life and recognizing that we've got uh, you know, uh, 
fearing the king, we've got political considerations and humility before government and all the rest that's there, but it starts with fear of the Lord. So both sides are in that verse. Once we finish the 30 statements, notice verse 23. <laughs> These also are the sayings of the wise. Okay, so we've we finished a whole unit of 30 sayings of the wise by the time we get this far, and then we're like, what, there's more? Well, yes, there's more. These also are the sayings of the wise. And six more statements get tacked on from verse 23 down to the end of the chapter in verse 34. Your poverty will come in as a robber, your want like an armed man. In fact, the final one of these is the, is the sluggard. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. We've, we've sung this song before. We've seen it in earlier sections of the book of Proverbs. Your poverty will come in as a robber. Your want like an armed man. Then, that's it. Okay? That finishes personal and public wisdom. That finishes the segment of the book of Proverbs that we introduced way back when, when we said we're going to take chapters 1 through 9 as a unit, chapters 10 through 24 as a unit, and chapters 25 through 31 as a unit. Okay? Those are the three broad sections of the book of Proverbs, dividing up the 31 chapters that way. When we get to chapter 25, you're going to notice these also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. And so the canon of Scripture was expanded. When Solomon died, the book of Proverbs was only 24 chapters long, if that, okay? But then, I think it was, I think that Solomon was the, the compiler and the, and the organizer for the first 24 chapters. But then he dies, and then later on, chapters 25 through 31 were appended to the canonical book of Proverbs. And that's not a problem for canonicity, it's not a problem for inspiration, it's not a problem for any doctrine we hold related to the revelation of the canon of Scripture. It's the plain statement that's being made. The Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So 150 years later, whatever the time span is between Solomon and, and Hezekiah, this now forms an expansion to the canon, an expansion to the book of Proverbs. And we'll talk about that some more when we get to chapter 25. For today, though, just understand where we are in chapter 23.1. We've crossed a chapter division, okay, but we're still in this section of the 30 sayings of the wise. It started with 22.17. All right, so here's saying of the wise number six, and it centers on dinner. It's going to make me hungry. Words of the wise number six, or W-O-T-W, if you like that as an, as an abbreviation. Words of the wise number six, the danger of delicacies for dinner. Verses one through three, the danger of delicacies for dinner. Now, this is not talking about spoiling your dinner by eating um, candy or junk food. Uh, but the word delicacies is in view here. Let's just look at verses 1 through 3 again. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is put before you. That's a command. This is the wisdom of Proverbs that's telling you to, uh, to be wise about what you're doing. Say, so I'm just sitting here with a ruler. Right? Why do I need wisdom? Because you're sitting there with a ruler, that's why you need wisdom. <laughs> All right? And we've been warned previously that you don't want to anger the king. You don't want to anger any ruler. Somebody in authority over you, you're in that position. Be mindful of where you are. 
consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. You got a knife there? You got a fork, a knife, a spoon, whatever you have? Um, Put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. You might be the kind of person that is extra vulnerable in this. You might not be, but you might be. And if you are, here's the amount of trouble you're in. (laughs) So grab that knife. All right, that's not telling you to kill yourself, but what it's saying is that's how serious this is. We're going to talk about this. Why is it that serious? What kind of appetites are we dealing with here anyway? And then it says, do not desire his delicacies, for it is a deceptive food. Do not desire his delicacies. That's what he eats. That's not what you normally eat. It's not, you know, that this doesn't typically show up on your dinner table at your house, but you're not at your house. This isn't your dinner table. You're at his house. All right? And so what he has is, is uh, called a delicacy. And we're going to see more delicacies later too when we get to uh, Words of the Wise number 8. And that's down later in the chapter. That's verses 6 through 8. So there's more delicacies coming up. Um, but the idea is there's, there's, there's food and then there's food, right? There's food and we all eat food. We all have to eat. But then there's food you don't have to eat to keep you alive, but boy, it sure is a treat when you get to, right? You go, wow, okay, you know? And, uh, and, and these rich guys seem to have it all. And then you start thinking, well, why don't I get that, okay? Because you can't afford it. And do you really need it? Why are you lusting after this? So these are some of the things that we have to be warned again. All right, so three verses. And um, this is slightly different as well. Uh, in, at the end of chapter 22, we notice most of these words of the wise were two verses long uh, until we got to the end of the chapter. And then number four and number five were just one verse long. You remember that? Well, now uh, that we get to words of the wise number six, we're dealing with a three-verse um, segment within uh, the poetry of this text. And what are we really dealing with? So let's tear it apart. Eating at the king's table is a great honor, so consider carefully. The imperative is consider carefully what is placed before you. And understand, why are you there? <laughs> okay? If you're, if you're sitting with the king, there's got to be some kind of reason. He invited you. You earned it. You're, this is a reward. You did him some great service. What, what business do you have even being there? That's the first question. Why am I here? Eating at the king's table is a great honor. And and there's so much to this doctrine. I I could spend the whole hour just on this slide right here. There's a whole honor to this. The Bible talks about this in a lot of different capacities. The fact that you're here means something has happened. (laughs) So be mindful of what has happened. Be mindful of who you're with. And don't get full of yourself. Don't forget who you are. Okay? And don't get full of yourself and think that you've earned this or you've deserved this. And maybe, is the king trying to honor you? Well then, accept it and be thankful for it. But don't push it. Don't overdo it. Don't insult the king. 
And there's a lot of applications on this. Okay, so the Bible talks about this. And in Genesis 43, the example is Joseph and his brothers. In 2 Samuel 9, the example is David as the king who invites Mephibosheth to sit at his table. It's a great honor. Daniel chapter 1, of course, eating at Nebuchadnezzar's table and eating Nebuchadnezzar's food. And Daniel says, I got a problem with that. I can't eat that. Well, are you going to insult the king by telling him you can't have, you can't eat from his table? What a tremendous honor. And then Jeremiah 52, and then Luke 14, and Luke 22, and Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And what does Jesus want to do? He wants to come in and dine. In fact, I'm going to start with that. I'm going to start, I'm going to go backwards a little bit. Revelation 3, because this is not a gospel invitation. This is not a verse you would use with an unbeliever and trying to get them saved. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Now obviously you have to have ears to hear. So he's talking about a believer. This is not an unbeliever getting saved. This is a believer who, need, who is being invited to have the king come in and eat with him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. So in this metaphor, you're the one that controls whether that door opens and closes. He's outside wanting to come in. He's outside knocking. And are you going to open? If you do, he comes in and you can dine, you can fellowship, you can eat. And what a great honor. Man, the king of the universe is coming to my house for dinner? (laughs) Wow. I will come into him, I will dine with him, and he with me. So I'm going to your place to eat, but I'm dining with you, you're dining with me. This becomes a mutual reciprocal fellowship opportunity. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So there's a future promise centered on the kingdom, but the present blessing is for this present dining, this present fellowship right here, right now. He's knocking now. Are you open to that fellowship with Jesus Christ right now? Or have you shut the door? All right, so that's kind of the the culmination of this. Let's start with uh, Genesis 43. And uh, we know the story, we know the background that um, Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Or they actually don't know if he's alive or dead. They don't, all they know is they sold him off to the Ishmaelites and the Ishmaelites took him down to Egypt and, and uh, sold him there to Potiphar. And, and really the brothers are clueless whether he's alive or dead. They have no idea. Okay? The lifespan of a typical slave is not very long so by now they can probably assume he's, he's safely dead. They don't know that he's basically the, the ruler of, of the world. <laughs> they don't know that he's second only to Pharaoh, and honestly, if he wanted to kill Pharaoh, he could, and become Pharaoh, right? Anyway, so now the famine is hit. They're coming down to get food. They don't know that that's their brother they're looking at. And in fact, he just kind of, and once he sees Benjamin, especially, it's almost too much for him to bear. Joseph hurried out. He was deeply stirred over his brother. He sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. He had to just step aside for a little bit and pull it all together. Then he washed his face and came out. He controlled himself and said, serve the meal. It's not an easy assignment for him. A lot of the things the Lord asks us to do aren't necessarily easy, but we've got to do it. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, 
because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Okay? So now we're dealing with all kinds of issues here. There's culture at work, okay? And there's people that won't eat with other kind of people. Because why? Because they're, they're racist, they're, they're prejudiced, they're, they're culturally offended. They're just, they don't want to be around those people. Why, don't, why would I eat with those people? I don't even like those people, okay? And this is the culture of, of what we deal with. All right. Now, when they were seated before him, and I think you've got to follow the details on this, they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. How did he figure that out? <laughs> How did this total stranger put Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, I mean, he just took all 11 of these, or 10 of these, I guess, not including himself, and he just put them in order. Put Benjamin on his left as the youngest. Well, that's a lucky guess. <laughs> How does this happen? And uh, he took portions to them from his own table. So they had been set up separately. Now he's feeding them from his table. What an honor. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. And this is an incredible honor. Because they're, I mean, they're just strangers. They're, uh, they're foreigners. They cross the border to buy food and, uh, and now they're being welcomed. They're feasting with the grand vizier of Egypt. And it goes on. Um, so that's the Genesis example about eating at a king's table. And you think it's a, are, is it precarious? <laughs> Could they say the wrong thing? Could they offend him? Could they be in a whole lot of trouble? Very easily. Know who you're sitting with and why you're there. Here's another example. Second Samuel chapter 9. David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was quite a transition between Saul and David. In fact, for seven years, David wasn't even king over all Israel. He had, he had the sovereignty over the tribe of Judah and he ruled over the tribe of Judah in, in Hebron. And, uh, and one of Saul's sons actually followed Saul, took the throne, and you ended up with a, a bit of a division there. Um, until David then after seven years gets all of it. He gets all 12 tribes. He becomes the king over all of Israel. And uh, now he wants to show a blessing to anybody in the house of Saul for the sake of Jonathan. Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lo-Dabar. And so, I mean, of course in the ancient world when there's a transition from one royal house to the other royal house, it's usually pretty brutal. You would be looking for any descendants, not to show them kindness, you'd be looking for descendants so that you could kill them. You want to remove any threat, you want to remove any claimant to the throne. And uh, David, if he was a pagan, would be hunting down Mephibosheth just to kill him, to take away any heir of Saul, anyone that might have a legitimate claim to the throne. And obviously he's falling on, on 
I mean, look where he's residing, in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. I mean, man, where else could you be? And uh, King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, of Lodabar. Some of this will make more sense to us when we start studying families, clans, tribes, and nations, and we start to see how the, the structure was established in ancient Israel. So Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. You talk about a blessing, you talk about a position. He doesn't have to go live with Machir anymore. He can now has his his estates are restored. The inheritance of Saul, the son of it was a tribe of Benjamin, the son of Kish, and uh, that the land, the, the everything that belonged to that clan and that tribe, it's now being properly assigned to Mephibosheth as the heir of Saul, the heir of of uh, Jonathan, and yet. Those estates, the land, the wealth, the the production of that land is one thing. He doesn't have to live on that land. In fact, he's invited to live in the king's house. He's dining here at the king's table. And so again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? (laughs) I've got no business eating at this table. You know, I mean, if you think about the politics and what what a king would be involved in, and the king's got other things going on. He's going to want to be, you know, he's going to want to be having state dinners with Egypt and with the Philistines and with all of the neighboring nations and Philistia. And, and he's going to be wanting, he's got to be, he's got to be, you know, organizing weddings between his sons and his daughters and these nearby kings. There's, there's a lot going on. Mephibosheth has nothing to offer David. Nothing whatsoever. But this is David's grace to him. Anyway, so there's more on that. Um, the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and his house I've given to your master's grandson. Now this, later on we're going to see Ziba's not going to like this because he's, he's a servant that thinks he can, he can score for himself. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and so he can really work the land, but it's not his. He's going to be a steward, serving at the king's good pleasure. So Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so shall your servant do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. He's he's brought into the family. He's considered to be one one of the family. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. Lived in Jerusalem, he ate at the king's table regularly, he was lame in both feet. All right. So that's the example there. So we have the Genesis example with Joseph and his brothers. We have David's example with Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. These great examples. Um, With Daniel... He was taken a captive into Babylon, Daniel and his three friends. They were given Babylonian names. They were uh, placed in the Babylonian educational system. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. Everything here is designed to brainwash these kids, to get them uh, absorbed into the Babylonian mindset, the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian diet, the Babylonian religion, everything. 
so that uh, these, this is uh, intended to brainwash these kids and, and then one of these guys can, can go back to Jerusalem and be a puppet on the throne there. That's how they did things in the ancient world. Educated for three years, at the end of which they enter the king's personal service. The problem is, though, when you get down to verse 8, Daniel made up his mind he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And so Daniel now has a faith conviction. Daniel has an issue. He's got a problem. And we don't know specifically, the Bible doesn't spell it out, what was the defilement? Was this meat sacrificed to idols? That might have been it. Uh, was, was there some association with this food and the, and the Babylonian worship? It, we don't have that kind of specificity. We just know that this is what Daniel made up his mind about. This was the conviction he came to. So he, besought, he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Okay? He's asking for a waiver. He's asking for a, a, a religious exemption. He's asking for a, a, as a conscientious objector. He's just asking permission. It's not wrong to ask. And so God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The guy could have said no. In fact, he kind of wants to say no. The commander of the official said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So he wants to grant Daniel's request, but he's not going to be judged by Nebuchadnezzar for failing in his duties. He says, I got a problem here. You solve my problem, I'll solve your problem. How about that? (laughs) And Daniel says, well, let's just test it. Let's just test it. Ten days. Give us some vegetables to eat, water to drink. Let our appearance be observed in your presence. And, And he leaves it he leaves it with Arioch. If the, if the servant says yes, then great. No, then great. Let our appearance be observed. Deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel says, in other words, I've requested the waiver. If you grant it, great. If you don't grant it, that's on you. So he listened to them in the matter, tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. They were fatter than all the youths that had been eating the king's choice food. <laughs> Obviously God's at work here. God's accomplishing His good pleasure. So you make your decisions, you leave it in God's hands, you, you request the politician, you know, whatever you want to do on this, grant it if you want, don't grant it if you don't want. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Actually, the overseer is going to make some bucks on this. Because <laughs> he's got a budget and he's going to, you know, he doesn't have to feed them all this choice food. So he's going to save uh, on that expense. And uh, yeah. And so as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Man, they excelled in school. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. All right, so this is what happens. Consider carefully. I think Daniel's the positive example. Consider carefully. If you're uh, seated before a king... Consider what is, consider carefully what is before you. Understand where you are and what God is doing. What's, what's happening in this episode? Another example at the end of the captivity, Jeremiah fifty-two. Let's 
This is 37 years later, right? Came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th of the month, that evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, here's what happens after Nebuchadnezzar's dead and now evil Merodach becomes the next king. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Wow, 37 years after the captivity. 37 years of being in prison. Then he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. He's giving him a job. He's giving him a place of honor. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. There's a change of events. (laughs) Okay. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion of all the days of his life until the day of his death. Wow, what an honor, what a privilege. He's not, he can't go back to Jerusalem, he can't rebuild the temple, he can't be a king ever again. But he gets to sit at evil Merodach's table and he gets an allowance and he's not treated as a prisoner. Interesting, isn't it? Why is this happening? Okay? We have all these why questions. We can't answer them. But just like Joseph's brothers wondering, what are we doing here? (laughs) Just like Mephibosheth wondering, I have no business being here. I'm lame in both feet. I'm I'm a threat. I mean, Mephibosheth had no business in David's house. And King Jehoiakim? How'd this happen? Okay? And so wherever you find yourself, if God's put you there, just be careful, (laughs) but also be thankful and say, okay, Lord, I'm where you want me and I'm going to enjoy this meal. I'm not going to lust after it. I'm not going to covet it. I'm not going to get full of myself for being here. You put me here and I may not be here tomorrow, (laughs) but I'm here today. So I want to consider carefully what's put before me and I'm also going to be mindful, I could be stepping in a minefield right now. Something else is going to happen in the course of this dinner. There's going to be a conversation. Anyway, so there's the example there. Luke 14. You didn't know there were so many dinner parties in the Bible, didn't you? Luke 14. One of my favorite parables in the, in the Life of Christ series. Jesus began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. So Jesus goes into this place and the first thing he sees is looking around and he's observing the behavior of all these people. They're picking out places of honor. So now he's going to be preaching to them. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. You don't know the guest list. You're full of yourself and you think you're the most important person here. You don't even realize. There's nine people more important than you. you. You belong down there. He who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. How insulting. 
See, but this is the thing. When you are invited by a ruler, don't presume anything. It's his party. It's his list. You're there because he wants you there, evidently. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. Just assume you're the least important guy there. Just assume you're Mephibosheth. You don't even belong there. Why are you here? Take the last place so that when the one who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. You will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And when the king says, hey, come sit up here. I want you right here. Then you move on up. But only when you're invited. Don't ever assume. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a spiritual principle for Zoe life that applies related to the judgment seat of Christ, but it's also a bios life principle that applies right here in secular life. And he doesn't stop there, by the way. That's the first lesson. Then he, that's just like he's warming up in his preaching. Then he gets to this next section. He also went on to say the one who had invited him. So his first sermon is, is preaching to these invited guests. Then he turns and he's preaching now to the host on this occasion. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, <laughs> do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. He says, you're just using this to network. You're just using this to foster business agreements. You're just using this to get something out of somebody you want something from. And uh, you're hoping to score a return invitation someplace higher than where you presently are. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here's an opportunity you have. And, And it doesn't tell us how any of these people responded. We don't know. The other guests, maybe they were totally offended. Maybe this host was absolutely flabbergasted. I don't know. We don't know if they responded well, if they responded poorly, or, or whatever. We're just not told. Then, one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, and he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Somebody there at the table actually had doctrine and recognized, you know what, beyond the, the bios life principles here, there's a real Zoe life application, and here's a believer looking forward to the coming kingdom actually understood that the parable was teaching two things. Teaching the here and now, but looking forward to what's coming up. Anyway, and and Jesus isn't done yet. So he said to him, (laughs) oh, uh, you're excited about the kingdom, huh? It's like me if I'm out there in the wild somewhere and I encounter a believer and they they, uh, they mention something about the rapture. I'm like, oh wow, you know about the rapture? Who taught you that? You're talking my language now. Let's uh, speaking of the rapture. Jesus says, "Oh, the kingdom. Here we go." A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, "Come, for everything is ready now." And how many of Jesus's messages related to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? How many of Jesus's messages related to the future millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ? How many of them are centered on food? on wine, on feasting, on a king and, and invited guests and those that aren't invited and some other rascal sneaking in but he's not dressed well and all this other stuff. I love these parables. We spent a ton of time on these in our Life of Christ series. These are all marvelous. And all of these form the basis. It's the metaphor. It's the, it's the realm in which Jesus taught these things. 
And, um, and I think we get confused in the church age because we're not in the kingdom yet. In the church age we live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. We live in the, in the church, not the kingdom. And we get all wrapped up over earthly stuff. But the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, right? You've got to keep spiritual functions first. Anyway, a whole other message on that that goes down to verse 24. None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Go out to the highways and along the hedges, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Anyway, if you want notes on that, they're sitting out there in the hallway. We taught that in the life of Christ. Uh, Chapter 22, also in Luke. Here's his disciples arguing about which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. (laughs) Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Judas and Judas, not Iscariot, and all these other guys sitting around, hey, which ones of us do you think is the best? <laughs> and, and really, it's, isn't it not the same issue he was just rebuking at that last dinner party we were reading? But his own disciples are now caught up in this. So the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Oh, it was a big deal. A big, t- big deal in the Roman universe. If... Um, you know, if, if, if Pompey was your, was your patron, or Julius Caesar, or Crassus, or any of these lords, if, you were, if, if he was your patron and you were his, man, that's a big deal. And then, of course, you had a network of folks below you that you were patron of, but, you know, those that were above you, and it was huge. Oh, in the Roman universe, that was, that was significant. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you will become like the youngest, the leader like the servant. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? So you have Caesar reclining at the table and the slave comes and serves him. And Jesus is just flipping the script and saying, look, you've got to be the servant. If you're not willing to be the servant, how are you preparing yourself for the coming kingdom? He says, I am among you as one who serves. There's the way the world operates and then there's the example Jesus Christ is setting in His first advent. He didn't come to recline at a table and be worshipped and, and, and be served as a king. He could have conquered the world, of course. But He came to serve, to wash the feet. And He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There are twelve apostles of the Lamb, and they're going to be, as the bride of Christ, they're going to have responsibility over Israel in the millennial kingdom. And then, of course, they're going to be sifted like wheat in the church age. And we already read Revelation 3.20. All right, so this is what we deal with. This imagery is is throughout the Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the imagery of dining with a ruler. It's a great privilege. It's a great honor. So be careful. (laughs) Don't mess it up. When you sit down to dine with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. That's everything. That's not just the food and drink. That's the king who's before you. That's the situation you find yourself in. That's the the, the entire scope of what we're dealing with here. 
put a knife to your throat indicates the deadly seriousness of this danger. All right? Put a knife to your throat. That's just uh, it's a threat, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's not telling you to kill yourself, but it is as an idiom, as an expression. Just, just you know, just realize, wait a minute. <laughs> I might be better off dead. It could be worse than death if, um, if I anger this Lord, if I anger this, this ruler. It's indicating the deadly seriousness of this danger. Because a great appetite supplies a vulnerability. Again, specifically, let me just reread the verse here. Proverbs 22 and uh, verse 1, 2, and 3. No, Proverbs 23. 1, 2, and 3. Alright. Put a knife to your throat if you are a man of great appetite. If you are a, uh, the Hebrew is fascinating, a Baal um, nefesh. A Baal Nefesh, a, a Lord of the Soul. What, what's this idiom about? Okay, I mean, I, and I'm okay with great appetite, and I have no issue with that. I think it's actually a nice English rendering of of an awkward Hebrew idiom. But great appetite. We have different appetites, and we have not just in kind, but also in degree. And so um, we might have an appetite for a, a food type. We might have an appetite for, uh, for wine. Uh, it might be so great that we cross the line into gluttony or alcohol, if a uh, drunkard, if, we're, uh, uh, if the appetite is too great. Um, there's also appetites for um, cultural advancement, appetites for social standing, an appetite for getting a taste of this uh, caviar, this luxurious food, having a taste for this table, and then realizing, wait a minute, I could get used to this. <laughs> I should have this. In fact, I deserve this. And, and then you're ruined. You walk away from that dinner and now your life is consumed with, instead of appreciating one meal as a grace blessing, you're just craving and coveting and lusting and, and beating yourself up over what you don't have and what you think you deserve. A great appetite supplies a vulnerability. There's a curious usage of nefesh. Normally when you see the word nefesh you just think soul. The nefesh is the soul. You have a body, soul, and spirit. Nefesh is the soul. Sometimes nefesh is rendered life and you have a sense, <clears throat> you know, if, if your life is saved that means your soul is saved. And your soul life <clears throat> in uh, in so many passages. But there are seven places in the Hebrew Old Testament where nephesh is rendered as appetite. And then there's only one of those seven times when nephesh is rendered appetite, but it's connected together with Baal, with as a phrase of Baal nephesh. A Baal is a lord. A Baal is a master. A Baal is sometimes a husband. If a woman gets married, then she now has a Baal. She has a Baal. She has a Lord. That is her uh, husband. Before she's married, her, her father is her Baal, is her Lord. So um, anyway, curious usage for nefesh, soul, related to appetite. And the phrase Baal nefesh, as the man of great appetite. 
We had something similar back in chapter 22, uh, not to associate with a man of anger. Remember that? And the idiom on the man of anger, where was that? The hot-tempered man, the man given to anger. That was 22-24. Do not associate with a man given to anger. And that was another Baal idiom. That combined Baal with nostril. The Baal af, the lord of the nostril. Okay, and we had a little fun with that. The Lord of the nostril, the bale of the nostril, that's the man of the consumed by anger. Here is the Lord of the uh, the Lord of the Nefesh, the Lord of the appetite. Okay? And if you're a man of great appetite, if you're a man that that essentially, if, if your appetite is your dictator, is your tyrant, you've got a problem. <laughs> okay? And uh, whether that's your food appetite, your alcohol appetite, your sexual appetite, your, you have tons of appetites. Maybe you just have a, an entertainment appetite. You've got a sports appetite. You've got a, you're a news junkie. You've got a political appetite. Whatever your appetite is, if that is the Lord of your life, you've got a problem. And so a man of great appetite is, is someone that's consumed by this. And I think in the New Testament it's described whose God is their belly. Remember that? All right. So, taking a look at some of these verses here. I thought we'd get further than this today. (laughs) All right, let me move this up here. That way I can still see my list of verses. All right. All the grumbling in the wilderness. Oh, we need to go back to Egypt. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumber, yeah, they were, it was free because you didn't own anything. You were a slave. You ate what the master gave you. You think slavery is great? Yeah, free food. It's slavery. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. And it's interesting because this, this is the first use in Scripture whereby nephesh is rendered appetite. And you're talking about greedy people that no longer have an appetite for God's perfect provision. They're, they're bored with a manna. And they want... They want to be slaves again, or they want they think they were eating better as slaves. Hmm. Proverbs 13, 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. That word for appetite there is nephesh, the soul. And I think it's remarkable because nephesh is put in parallel with stomach. And we realize that there are soul satisfactions and there is stomach satisfactions. And they're put in parallel here. And, and, you know, if we have food and covering with these, we should be content. We have, you know, the, the, the blessings of God as He provides for His children, the appetites that are content if in grace we thank God for the meal, or that are not content if in grace, we don't thank God for the meal. We just grumble over what we would rather be eaten. The stomach of the wicked is in need. What a contrast. 
16.26, also in Proverbs. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. Sometimes it's good to be hungry. <laughs> you know, hunger is a good motivation. You want to eat? You need to work. So the appetite, that's the nefesh appetite, works for him. It's a benefit, for his hunger urges him on. And of course, 23.2 is our verse today. Ecclesiastes 6.7 all of a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Human viewpoint, you can be, you can just throw up your hands in despair and say, what's the point? Why am I working? I don't even want to make money anymore. I don't even want to eat food anymore. What advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Anyway, you can get jaded. Your soul can be, uh, can look at this world in a Ecclesiastes mindset. That's called perverted wisdom. Don't go there. Ezekiel 7.19 They will fling their silver into the streets and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite nor can they fill their stomachs for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. Isn't that amazing? Some of the richest people you'll ever meet and they have no soul satisfaction. And their money is useless. They cannot satisfy their appetite nor can they fill their stomachs. Habakkuk 2.5 And before I get to verse 5, of course, there's verse 4. It gets quoted in the New Testament so frequently. As for the pride one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Furthermore, Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. And he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Okay, This is another one of those death references you were asking about the other day with death in Hades. Here's Sheol and death. All right. So if you're a man of great appetite, if you have an unstable soul, be careful. You just found yourself, you're sitting here at this meal and you are more vulnerable than anybody else because you have this weakness. And if you're not willing to admit it, if you're not willing to acknowledge it, if you're just lying to yourself about it, that doesn't help. You think your host is ignorant? He knows your weakness. That's why he invited you. <laughs> he knows all about, he knows you're a man of great appetite. He plans on using that. Plans on using that against you. And here you are. And here's this food right in front of you. And here's this occasion and this ruler, you know, he didn't invite you there for no reason. He's got you there for his reasons. Why why are you there? <laughs> Put a knife to your throat. All right, be thankful for God's faithful provision and do not covet what God has not prepared for you. Do not covet what God has not prepared for you. And then we should, we'd also say what God has prepared you for. Goes two directions on that. God is preparing things for you and God's also preparing you for other things. So be thankful for God's faithful provision. In other words, don't covet. Do not desire His delicacies for it is a deceptive food. 
Do not desire his delicacies. Why are you coveting that? Why are you desiring that? You're just setting yourself up for trouble. Exodus 20 and verse 17 says, Thou shalt not covet your neighbor, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's food, your neighbor's um, menu. This is the final point in the Ten Commandments, right? The tenth uh, thou shalt not in the, in the Decalogue. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Anything under his sovereignty. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that includes the food, that includes the delicacies, that includes what we're looking at here in Proverbs 23. Do not desire his delicacies for it is a deceptive food. Do not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. This idea of covetousness, it'll eat you up. All coveting does is, is, um, is poison the soul into a permanent dissatisfaction. So don't covet. God is giving you what you need. God is faithfully providing. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Just keep serving the Lord and accept His grace. He provides for you. If you're grumbling over what you, you know, what this Lord is eating, what this King is eating, and how come I can't have that? Why don't I have Chateaubriand seven days a week? Why don't I have, you know, what are you, what are you really doing? Just be thankful. God is faithful. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Yeah, he's got this great table, but you know how miserable he is? Do you know how enslaved he is to Satan's system? Psalm 84.11 the, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. Okay, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And if he hasn't given it to you, it's not a good thing. You don't need it. Why do you want it? Why are you coveting it? No good thing does he withhold. So if he's not given you this lifestyle of the rich and famous, it's because you can't handle this lifestyle of the rich and famous. So quit, uh, quit grumbling about not having it. Yeah, I, w- I want to live on a mega yacht. I want 30 servants to live aboard and I want to be fed. What is all that? I don't want any of that. It's kind of fun to watch YouTube tours on the, some of these yachts though. You can see some of the staterooms and the engine rooms and I watch a lot of yacht tours. Maybe, uh, maybe in the millennium I'll have a yacht. I don't know. Psalm 104. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. So if these simple animals can uh, have the common sense, all the creatures, all the lions, Leviathan, foxes in their dens, everybody else, the whole animal realm, God feeds them. The animals take what God feeds them. You give to them, they gather it up, you open your hand, they're satisfied with the good. It's humanity that can't be satisfied. It's the fallen human soul in Adam that just 
struggles to be satisfied with God's grace. And I'll close with James 1.17. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. If He's given it to you, it's a good thing, praise God. If He's not given it to you, it's not a good thing, praise God. As the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Father, I thank You for this lesson. I thank You for teaching us. I pray that we learn words of the wise, number six, and that we have uh, discretion, that we can be like Daniel if we're placed in an awkward position and we can reply with discernment and discretion or we can be um, in any of these examples, Father, as Jesus was speaking. We can be the humble man and just take the, the low spot of the table in, uh, in any of these examples, Father. Just open our eyes to the various applications. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.